Hi friends, welcome to Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Mighty Rossing. Mighty is, in my opinion, another one of the faces of the future of the United Methodist Church. He was born to United Methodist pastors in the Philippines where he was nurtured and empowered and discerned his call to serve the church as a layperson. Through his work with Discipleship Ministries, he has built relationships with the United Methodists across our global connection. And he's developed a deep appreciation and understanding of the gifts and complexities, nuances, and commonalities of our global denomination. His wealth of knowledge and experience helps us understand who we are and where we might be heading in the years to come. I know my view of who we are has been expanded because of all that Mighty shared in this interview. And I'm excited about the possibilities of a global future for our denomination. So you know what to do. Grab that notebook, get that choice beverage ready, and let's settle in for this interview with Mighty Rossing. Mighty Wrestling, how are you doing today? I am doing good, doing good. Mighty, I really appreciate you being willing to join me on the podcast. And I'm going to go ahead and name that you um, get the really great privilege of being a dad to three growing boys. And we may or may not hear their interactions in the background, but I am here for it all because... Um, I've I've seen your kids and they're 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 pretty awesome. So um, I appreciate you being on the podcast today. Uh, I think you just got back from the Congo. Am I correct in that? Yeah, that's right. Actually, we arrived from uh, the North Katanga Episcopal area. I think last Friday, so about a few days ago. Awesome, Mighty. You and I met uh, doing work uh, for the division of ministries with young people through discipleship ministries um, and, and, and a lot of work around, you know, that group specifically, but also uh, Global Young People's Convocation in Johannesburg a few years ago. Um, and I just appreciated just how much of like a powerful figure you are in the space. I mean, you are a human of incredible capacity and leadership. And it's important to say this because it wasn't just in the US context that I saw it. I saw this in the global context, in your relationship with United Methodists who were not US citizens. And the leadership you, you brought, the, the degree of compassion and understanding, uh, that you brought to your role, that you bring to your role. I just was inspired by it and have always kind of just said, gosh, like, 
I think Mighty's younger than me, but I kind of want to be like Mighty when I grow up. Um, <laughs> so I just, I really appreciate you and just all you bring to our church. But I, I would love to know, and I think uh, our listeners would really appreciate hearing your journey of becoming a Christian, specifically United Methodist Christian, and God's provenient grace in your life, bringing you into the church. So some of that story. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Thanks, Derek. You know, those are some of the most fun times I've had in, in ministry, working with with many different young leaders, adult leaders from all over the world. Yeah. So many challenges, so many moving parts of putting that together. And, it was and, fun. And it was fun. And thank you for being there as well. You know, all of those gifts just gel together and bring yeah. bring brought out this amazing event for youth, young adults and adult leaders. So. Mm. Um, well, as to my story, where, where do I even begin? <laughs> it's safe to say that I'm a lifelong United Methodist. Uh, both of my pastors are, uh, both of my parents are pastors in the United Methodist Church. They actually met at a uh, Bible school in our home province in the Philippines, in, in northern Philippines. So, and then um, I was born and both of them were already pastoring churches. And so... Um, one of the stories that my mom always brought up when I was younger was that she would go and preach. And while she was preaching and I'm away from her, I would be crying like all the time. <laughs> so I grew up around church people. I attended annual conferences at a very young age because my my, my dad and my mom would just bring me and uh, me and my sister. And then uh, as I was growing up, I uh, did the whole age level ministries thing, um, children's ministries, youth ministries. But I would say that the one of the biggest in influences in my faith development was um, the youth ministry in the church. The United Methodist Youth Fellowship in the Philippines is very strong in terms of faith development, faith formation and leadership development. And so at a young age, I, was, I became like a, a district officer and an annual conference officer and eventually became the national president of the UMYF in the Philippines between 2006 and 2008. And theologically speaking to like an understanding of our faith, like all these prevenient grace and, and justifying grace and, and, and sanctify, sanctification, all mm -hmm. of these things, I've learned that as I was growing up, uh, again, through the UMYF. And then there's this specific program for young people in the Philippines called School for Christian Youth Development, hmm. SCD. It's kind of like an, an intensive training for young people. Uh, sometimes it lasts for a week. Sometimes I think it, it lasted for three weeks. Where Kind of like a, a summer school where you go and learn about theology, learn about the Bible, learn about preaching, and then you get deployed every weekend to a church to serve as liturgists worship leaders, and sometimes even preachers. So you'd see these young people aged between 12 to 24 preaching in the church. And to me, that was a very special training that I did, uh, I think, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And this is still going on. And this is kind of like the pipeline for leaders in the Philippines that, that I've seen. Um, but, but, you know... After my stint with the National Youth Fellowship, uh, UMYF, I became involved with division and ministries with young people. 
uh, served as a representative for that for two years. And then I served under contract with the MYP, and, uh, which is the division in ministries with young people mm-hmm. under discipleship ministries. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of alphabet soup coming to my head right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. But, but then I served in that capacity between 2009 to 2015. And then I moved to the U.S. in 2015 to take on a role as a U.S.-based staff of the DMYP to do work with uh, young people in the central conferences. Mm-hmm. And then in 2019, following a reorganization at Discipleship Ministries, I took on this new role. It's called uh, Director of Conference Relationships, which I currently am. Also worth noting, I'm a lay person. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've had... <laughs> lay people, lay, come on. Right? Laity rising, yep. <laughs> and I, I have had some people ask me, like, so when are you going to enter full-time ministry? And I'm like, I'm doing full-time ministry, thank you. It's just mm-hmm. that I'm not clergy. So, so I, I've been I've been using that phrase, like, uh, several times. <laughs> no, I love it. And I, let me ask this question, and I've asked it of other folks as well, uh, I'd love for you to articulate your call to ministry, which usually is a question that is placed before our clergy, particularly as they are uh, candidates for ministry. But particularly in United Methodism, we believe that everyone is called uh, to some form of ministry, though there are those who are set apart for clergy orders. But I'd love for you to tell us Describe to us your call to ministry. What is God calling you and has called you to um, as a layperson in the UMC? Yeah, let me unpack that. (laughs) Dive a little bit into the history, right? Oh, I forgot to mention one of the very formational programs for me as well is this thing called Christmas Institutes in the Philippines. I've heard much about this. Yeah. Yep. So from age 11, I think, until 24, right, when I exited the youth fellowship in the Philippines, I I was attending those, and it was very formational. And that has something to do with the development of my sense of call, that I belong in this community of United Methodists, and these are the wonderful things that are being done. Like every Sunday, we go to, to church and worship God and be with each other, and look at all the wonderful things that are being done also in the community, uh, not just in the local church, but because of limited resources, a lot of the work are being done in the district level and in the annual conference level. So um, the way that my my sense of call developed was, again, through those Bible studies, formational ministries and educational ministries of the church. And then when I was graduating in high school, when I was trying to discern where I want to go, I I sort of have this idea that I wanted to be a pastor, right? Because I was so involved with the church. And then my dad and I had a, a conversation and he said, you know, you can go straight to Bible school if that's what you really want. But he gave me this advice, which I'm really thankful for that uh, he he told me that I had the, the mental capacity and also the um, budding expertise to to try it out in the broader world, so to speak. And so he said, go get your four-year degree, whatever it is that you want, check your calling, see if it changes, live your life essentially, 
and 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 experience the the world outside the confines of the, our home and our church community and see where that takes you and for me that was I, I really appreciated that and and so i went and pursued my bachelor's degree at the university of the philippines um in in political science i was considering uh going to law oh wow but decided like uh, ha- uh midway through college i'm like I'm not cut out for law. <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> and so my sense of calling then evolved into, okay, I think I want to write. Um, I, I want to write. I want to pursue like um, creative writing and and all that uh, fun stuff. But I also had an agreement with my parents that I was just going to stay in college for four years because I had a sibling that was coming up behind me. And, and then I graduated from college, went back to our province, got involved with the the UMYF again after college and that's when I went back into the into the um, you know to the ministry with youth and young adults and then uh, because of economic necessities I went back to Manila oh by the way just to give some context right my home when I say home province that's about 300 kilometers maybe about 250 miles away from Manila and this was the pre-digital age, or rather the transition stage, right? So no widespread internet then. Um, my first computer I've had when after college because I couldn't, we couldn't afford it initially. So, um, and then I needed to go back to to Manila to to get a, a good paying job because it it couldn't support me in in our province. So get this, uh, Derek, it, speaking of calling in a sense of call and pursuing ministry. In 2006, when I was elected as the national president of the UMYF, mm-hmm. I was doing my corporate job that was also a little bit uh, challenging in terms of, you know, I was I was 24 years old. It mm-hmm. was, um, I'd like to say that career was on the up and up because you know getting more responsibilities at work and you you'd like that when you're in your early 20s right yes For you do you do fun stuff but then i also was torn between this um i really want to do ministry because this is something that's a big part of who i am and how i see myself in this world and then things came to a head and then i had to decide so by the De- december 2006 I resigned from my full-time job to do volunteer work as the national UMYF president. Um, and mm. here's the thing. I recently had a girlfriend by that time. So she was paying for our dates initially. <laughs> so, so, but, but that she's my wife now, by the way. So mm. it's all good. So <laughs> I, I think there was just that. I think that was like a, a turning point for me, kind of like, do I want to mm. pursue this corporate job? Do I want to pursue this ministry track? Do I want to keep both? But it came to a point where there are many things that I want to do with ministry, and I feel like I cannot do justice to both if I pursue both at the same time, right? Yeah. So I yeah. I took this path, and then eventually, uh, when was that, 2006, like, more than a decade later, mm-hmm. here I am. So mm-hmm. that's been what, yeah. So so wow. here I am, <laughs> a series of steps, and here I am, still working with the church, uh, just at a different level. So. Yeah, it and it, it's always a series of saying yes to open doors, 
saying yes to um, what feels like impossible situations at times. Um, there's so much of that resonates with me, Mighty. I thank you for sharing all of that. You've been working at Discipleship Ministries for many years now. And, and I'm curious, I mean, obviously there's a difference between, you know, being a part of a local church and what ministry looks like there and ministry that looks like, what ministry looks like at a United Methodist agency. But I, I'm even curious, like, how what you do at Discipleship Ministries compares to what you re recall from being in ministry in the Philippines um, and what that's like for you. Um, yeah, that, that's a good question, Derek. You know, I've, I've seen both like from, from the ground and also at this level of the general agency. And, and some people would say that general agencies may have, you know, a lot of bureaucracies, right? But uh, from the ground as a youth, young adult leader back in the Philippines, I would say that the ministries being offered by the general agencies was a multiplier if, um, in, in the sense that there are some resources that are available, whether those are, say, print or uh, online resources and the grants particularly mm -hmm. that support the ministries on the ground. Uh, like when, when I was in the, in, in the youth leadership in, in the national level in the Philippines, we, we asked for a grant. I can't remember if it was the Salvation Ministries or GBCS, Church and Society, where we hosted a songwriting competition where young people would write their own songs and then we will record it professionally or semi-professionally given the technology available to us back then. And, and you know what? We called it Awit Kayawe, so Song for Yahweh. And, and since 2006, that, that program is still going on to, I think, this day. I think they've released wow. six albums now, maybe seven. And all original songs composed and written by United Methodist young people in the Philippines. Mm. So some of it is also on Spotify. I mean, I'll share with you the link. Uh, Please do. So, um, are they are the songs in Tagalog or are they in English or? Some are in Tagalog. Uh, some are in English. And so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that that's that was something that we did in honoring the talents of young people, giving it as an offering to the church. Mm -hmm. um, and also, we, we tried starting some campus ministry programs, um, a number of programs, and so which is which is how you know the the ministries at the general agencies are multipliers, especially if there are already initiatives that are happening on the ground and the the resources from the general agencies come together and 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 expands that, amplifies that, you know. And of course, the, the presence of general agencies are, is also generally welcome. Um, you know, th there's a lot of conversation to be had for neo-colonialism, right? And, and imposing on, on um, central conferences. But even if there are mistakes, you know, the presence, this, this idea of a worldwide connection 
is a wonderful thing where we mm. can learn from each other and we can direct resources to where it is needed. Yeah. So um, now going back now on the on the general agency level as well, it's to see that we I think that for maybe at least the past decade, there's been a growing sense of we need to be more contextual and not just forklift a resource from the US, translate it into a local language, whether that's Tagalog, whether that's Vietnamese or Mongolian, but rather ask some questions that, is this applicable in this setting? What are the metaphors, idioms, practices that do not translate and how would you implement that in a contextual setting? And, you know, and I think that's been a very welcome conversation to be had because, um, there, there are stories where harm can be done when when concepts and practices are forklifted from one context to another without mediating and understanding how the culture works in a particular region. Yeah. So, and I'm really glad that that conversation is happening. We don't get it perfectly. We, <laughs> we still make mistakes for mm -hmm. sure. Um, but I think that having that conversation, having that sensitivity has been rising and and I think it's a welcome development in in our worldwide connection. Yeah. I love it that you just said uh, one of the things that the agency has done is been a uh, you said the way you said it it's been a ministry multiplier on the ground outside of the United States. Um and and a lot of people actually don't know yeah, why we have agencies? Um, they don't. We could list them all right now. We're not going to do that, but we could list them. Uh, but they don't. They would be surprised that there's a general board of discipleship. That there is a general board of higher education and ministry. Like, and 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 so, not even knowing that the agencies exist, there's sometimes a lack of awareness of what they do. So, in addition to being a ministry multiplier, what is been the work from your perspective of agencies and its impact um, on the ground in the church that's outside the United States. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's see where this conversation takes us, right? <laughs> um, and of course, uh, I would also just like to say, although I work with discipleship ministries, I would like to say that I'm sharing this from my perspective as a central conference person working in a general agency and should not be construed as officially coming from the discipleship ministry. So Mighty is speaking for Mighty. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. So yes. I just wanted to make make sure that that's out there. Yeah. Um, you know, th that question, Derek, is, is really relevant because just um, about two weeks ago from when we're having this conversation, um, a team of us went to uh, DR Congo, particularly in the North Katanga region, and we we saw some of the realities on the ground. And you know, when, and sometimes uh, we do have a lot of mixed feelings when we provide some resources or let's just say money as well to central conference ministries, right? Mm -hmm. Because it gets complicated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it gets complicated. And I recognize that uh, mm -hmm. there are, uh, th there could be issues there of say, reporting accountability and evaluation is this a day of the most effective way of of deploying resources and things like that right 
But one of the things that was helpful for me when we went and visited was the reality on the ground is really very different. You see the uh, the lack of infrastructure. Uh, the road system is not existent. Um, we needed to fly by plane to reach the the uh, cities um, on time. And so you also see that uh, the the economic situation is very different. The churches are, you know, there's a church, but you also see that in terms of the needs of the people, you, you can see a lot of needs in the community. Um, and so in in when we talk about the role of the agencies, uh, I said that it's a multiplier, but in also in some cases, in some cases, and again, especially if it's done in collaboration with the locals, is that they can jumpstart movements. They can jumpstart possibilities. And the way that this happened was uh, we were talking with Bishop Monte Moyombo from North Katanga, and we were talking about uh, ministry models how does the church in the congo plan churches how do they approach church right and the way that he said was that the church is not just for the spiritual feeding of the people but rather he showed us like a, in a church there is a well beside it right water providing water which is an important um component of a community clean water and then he said right near the water the, the water well is you see a school there is a school and there is a partnership between the the church and the government to help provide educational services and in some cases in addition there is also a clinic right so you see this holistic approach where it's not just spiritual feeding which Sometimes we can get caught up with this, the divide between the sacred and the profane, the, mm -hmm, the mundane mm -hmm. and the spiritual, you know. But here, because the community needs so much, the church becomes like a, um, a like also a center of activity within the community uh, where life happens in, in many different ways. Yeah. So, which is to say that general agencies support these kinds of ministries to happen when there's disaster that happens the united methodist committee and relief is there uh the general board of global ministries is also supporting missionaries on the ground and let me also just say this um kudos to gbgm for this um slogan from everywhere to everywhere and that's the general board of global, of ministries. global ministries yeah yes. yeah so when we think of missionaries and i say this from the central conference right it's no longer just white people going everywhere it's from everywhere to everywhere so you see brown people going to different places also doing ministry work you see africans going to different places doing ministry work um and so it's again it's a wonderful affirmation of our worldwide connection and and when we learn from each other I think that's where we do best as a church. And the, um, the ministry models are not just in the US, 
it happens like everywhere. <laughs> so, so that, that I think that, that's a wonderful affirmation, really, of of how church happens in in many different contexts, many different places, and that's also informing my work at the Shalpership Ministries, where you see uh, what models can we discover and what we can share, right? And especially now in the age of diaspora, where where there's a Zimbabwe congregation in the Middle East. There's a Filipino congregation in the Middle East, a Filipino congregation in Canada, a Zimbabwean congregation in Canada, you know, or in the UK. Yeah. So it's, it's this, we're moving to a new set of reality. We don't know for sure what that looks like, but this set of reality is, is becoming, you know, it's, it's, it's diffusing. It's, it's here. Yeah. So, so right before the pandemic hit and closed down everything, I had yeah. an, the opportunity to sit down with the mission roundtable organized by Global Ministries. And I had an, an opportunity to have a conversation with pastors in Vietnam. We do have a church in Vietnam, a mission initiative under Global Ministries. Um, also in uh, Cambodia, of course, which is a partnership between the Korean Methodist Church, the Singapore Methodist Church, and the United Methodist Church. And so, and we have Vietnamese Methodists in the U.S., uh, like uh, Hmong communities, H-M-O-N-G communities in, in the U.S. as well. So, and <laughs> get this, Derek, I was in conversation with a pastor in Great Plains last year during their annual conference. And she said that she is doing ministry with United Methodists from Rwanda, from Uganda, and from many other places. And they were asking if there are resources for, um, for Christian growth, Methodist faith in Swahili or in French. Mm. And I'm like, this is an opportunity for the global church to also support the church in the U.S., in its effort to become more multicultural and yeah. to to support the development of faith in in migrant communities as people are moving in to these new places and you know post pandemic there's been a rearranging of where people live and so mm -hmm. how do we then live out to this to this you know division in the bible where many tongues many tribes many peoples coming together and, and worshiping God and, you know, just this diversity. And so th there's real opportunity for us to, to utilize this worldwide connection. And again, not just from the U.S. to Central Conference, but rather it's like, again, borrowing from Global Ministries, from everywhere to everywhere. Yeah, so. yeah. I've been told many times that the church is growing on the African continent, the United Methodist Church specifically. Um, and I think you've gotten to see some of that. What has been uh, important for you as you've you know, engaged, particularly with the United Methodists on that continent and maybe even what we might learn from them here in the US? Some of what I've seen is that just the integration of the community, uh, of the church in the community um, several things that, that I'm just going to, to share is that the choirs in Africa are telling stories from the Bible in their songs that they composed, right? So mm -hmm. um, when I was in a worship service in, the, in I think, in Kamina, 
they were sharing in their song. I, I couldn't understand it, but I was asking the um, uh, the translator who, who was with me, our host, and said, hey, what, what, what is that song about? What is that song about? And he said, oh, they're, they're sharing about Peter denying Jesus three times before mm. the rooster crowds. And then um, what what's that song all about? It's about Gideon uh, choosing the 300 members of his army before setting out. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's oral tradition at work and in places where literacy is not as it is say in in many other places right because people mm -hmm. are not reading now you draw on the power of songs drums to tell the stories of the bible mm. and so i was also thinking about oh wow this is this is powerful so people still know um, the, the, the stories from the Bible, the stories of our faith. And um, in, in other places as well where growth happens, there is a desire to address the needs of the people and not just the spiritual needs when, when healthcare is provided. I mean, it's not like a high-level healthcare, but healthcare is provided, some medicines are provided, and again, this is through partnerships with the church in many different places, whether that's Europe, whether that's the U.S. or, yeah. or, or other places where resources is more abundant, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, some of those resources are then provided to help address the healthcare needs of a community. Um, also, one of the things that I've also learned is that they also push through some of the cultural mindsets, in particular, the role of women. Mm. And, and in some places, it's intentional to designate a woman pastor as a district superintendent, not just to make a statement, but, well, I guess it's making a statement that women are co-equal with men in leadership positions. And, mm -hmm. and I feel like in, in, in many places where men are still traditionally seen as the head of a tribe or head of a household or whatnot, that women, you know, are there too, capable of becoming leaders. And, yeah. and to me, that's also pushing the boundaries of, of the culture to an extent. Wow. And, and, and that's an important work of the church as well, right? Absolutely. You know, Mighty, I, I don't want to cut you off uh, if you've got more to say, but I just want to insert here the few times that I've been to Africa, um, Zimbabwe a couple of times, South Africa a couple of times, Angola once. Um, I've only met female district superintendents. Now, I've not, you know, not been across the entire continent, definitely right. didn't even experience the entire entirety of these countries, right? But I've only met female district superintendents That's on wonderful. the ground in Africa. <laughs> Anything else you want to share with us around just yeah. the church in Africa and what they're doing? And, and the church in Africa, uh, and of course, it's not a monolith, right? It's there's also many different dynamics within Africa itself, right? Um, right. Languages and 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 uh, cultural dynamics and all that. But but I think that in in general, because of 
the the testimony of the church in the community and addressing some of the needs of the people in the community is that the church is seen as a partner not just something that comes and preaches and needing to save you after you die <laughs> i mean mm. you know uh, for some that's a theology that they embrace but i think that being relevant to people's lives in the in the here and now as well as in the afterlife is also a testimony that the church is is doing in in, mm. in those places and uh, that's also true for europe and in in the philippines right and in southeast mm -hmm. asia where for example the church in europe is also ministering with with migrants um and, and communities and also looking at what are the needs of the communities and how how can we partner in 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 being church yeah so, can you tell us a little bit more about the church in Southeast Asia? Because that's, it's new to me. Um, and I'd love to just hear a little bit more of, of where we are, who we're partnered with, what's happening on the ground there. Sure. Um, in the last general conference, which I can't remember now, maybe. Was uh, 2016 it? was probably oh when gosh. we did it. Yes. Yes. It's, it's, it's been too long. It's um, been there was an action to create a provisional central conference in Southeast Asia and Mongolia. I don't really know what the update is on that, whether it's going to continue as a, a provisional central conference or a central conference in the future. But we do have several countries there in addition to the Philippines where uh, we have a presence as, as United Methodists. So that's Mongolia, Cambodia, and Vietnam. I think those are... Those are the countries at the top of my head. Wow. Um, but it's also growing. A lot of those tend to have a lot of young people because the population mm -hmm. in general is young. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I have had an opportunity to visit Mongolia, Cambodia, and Vietnam like um, in the 20, 2017, I believe. And, and that's the same thing. They are doing ministry in, in those places. And... Sometimes the the social rules, the government rules are not very friendly to the church, um, but but they still do it. Um, and again, they are embedded in the community where they, they talk with some of the elders in the community. They also um, provide some spiritual support. But I think that 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 model of providing and helping address the needs of the community is also present. Um, so your dad told you years ago that you had the competence and capacity to work outside of the church and you should give that a go but you got pulled, you, the spirit pulled you in. <laughs> and so you've seen a lot. Um, and we'll talk about sort of the big themes in a bit, but you've seen a lot of, you know, how our church works and the impact of that on the ground, probably in the U.S., but definitely outside the U.S. What's keeping you in this work, what 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 keeps you saying yes to getting on a plane and going to Congo or 
I imagine being on Zoom calls at all hours of the morning and night to connect with colleagues across the planet. What keeps you in this work? You know, I think it's really that sense of call, um, this this worldwide connection that we have, I think is special. It's not always easy. I mean, we've had a lot of difficulties over the past what, decade, maybe yeah. more. Yeah. Um, but I do think that discipleship happens like everywhere. And, and that's what I just been telling myself, telling some friends that, you know, mm. whatever happens in the very near future, in the farther mm -hmm. future, I think that the work of making disciples will continue. Yeah. Um, and, and for me personally, uh, I have had this, uh, this this philosophy i mean earlier not as much right now but you know when one of your foot is in the system and the other one is exploring like many places uh some of my colleagues some of my friends know that i have like a lot of varied interests yeah um i i do dabble a little bit in literature i do dabble a little bit in technology and communications and things like that that's not struck uh that's not strictly within my area of responsibility right but and sometimes i need to be reined in like okay i gotta focus on this area at least for now <laughs> but for me it's it's to see those stories of impact of how the church is is representing jesus in many different places around the world that is a, a worthy worthy sense of call that's always empowering and encouraging when you see that in spite of many differences the church um continues uh not just differences challenges issues problems and and we're not perfect people. We're not a perfect church. Um, God knows there's a lot that can be improved, but, but seeing people follow Jesus and young people, older people, um, where, where, where lives are being changed, that's, that's wonderful and very encouraging and empowering. Wow. Let's take a quick break. Mighty, I've appreciated you talking about just the parts of our church, you know, kind of global, all over the place. Um, I, I'm, I'm jealous of how many plane flights you probably uh, have and your medallion status on Delta. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous, I'm sure. Um, but home, in many ways, is the Philippines. That's, that's the space that nurtured you um, and raised you. What's, what's church been like? What is the life of the church in the Philippines? Um, and what's on your heart? What are, what are the things that stick in your mind as you think about the church in your homeland? Um, so many things, Derek. Um, I think that I guess I would just raise some some challenges as well in in the church in the Philippines in the sense that uh, we've we've been having some struggles when it comes to members going to other um, non-denominational churches usually specifically in the cities mm. 
right? Mm. And so this got me thinking um, because I did have conversations before moving to the U.S. with some friends who decided to go to a different church, uh, non-denominational, usually ending in CF, like Christian Fellowship. Uh, just put mm -hmm. something before that. Mm -hmm. And and they had they had a, a a myriad of reasons, right? Um, and and sometimes I've been asking like, is it the ministry model? Is it the the set of doctrines that they perceive is there? Is it you know, is it because they adhere more to that? Is it because it's more welcoming? But part of my thinking process is that as you know, cities urbanized and some of the places in the provinces also urbanized these mega churches non-denominationals tend to be very strategic in targeting people um in those places and so they mm. and, and and that's a ministry model that they have arrived at mm -hmm. and so made me wonder about our ministry models as well as as, as unc because mm. we do and again this is my personal observation yeah. we tend to be good in places where there's rural uh i think more rural areas where where there are some let's just say humanitarian needs um and i also remember a former bishop who said that um in 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 a meeting in a in like a, a an urbanizing area in the province and somebody from a church not umc said oh the 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 poor people the people who are you know don't have a lot of money oh let them go to the umc let's target the middle class and the upper middle class people in the community and then the, the bishop said if that is what god is sending us it's called us to then that's who we will be in ministry with and for me, that's also an affirmation of, of the call that we are to go to, you know, uh, to, to people who are in need, to people who are maybe considered the least of this in, in the community. Um, and, and that's an affirmation. But, but also at the same time, part of me was thinking like, well, the rich people also need Jesus. <laughs> and they need a place to support the people in their community who do not have the same level of of ministry so to mm. me the question then becomes how do we create a church where you know both the rich the poor the the different races can come together different cultures can come together so i guess that's not just a u.s issue but also like a, a, a an issue in many different places where how do we transcend class how do we transcend economic um, standing. How do we transcend mm. um, wealth so that we can bring people together and 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 be a community of faith, right? So, um, with that said, uh, I've, I've said a lot, but <laughs> my, no, my this really, is really helpful. Uh, a lot of my hope for for the UMC in the Philippines, and I would say worldwide, is that um, so we continue to do the work of discipleship, right? um uh, develop leaders among the youth and older people as well and again uh, new realities are coming to us dawning maybe it's here already i've mentioned something they the diaspora um, currently about 10 to 12 percent of filipinos are are migrants in in many mm -hmm. different places 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same is true for African countries, uh, Southeast Asian mm-hmm. countries. And so this is one of those areas of ministries that maybe the Filipino church can can offer to the rest of the connection. Yeah. Um, this is really helpful, Mighty. And, and I like to stay on this conversation specifically about the church in the Philippines sometimes in the United States, and it's very reductionistic, but sometimes in the United States, we do think of our churches outside the U.S. as people of one mind. Uh, They've always had one mind. They always will have one mind. Now, we all know that's not true. I mean, our local churches are not of one mind, let alone (laughs) entire central conferences. But I I'm curious, can you bear out a little bit of the diversity of thought that is in the Philippine Central Conference um, and maybe even some of the ways that that diversity of thought has been challenging for that part of our connection? Yeah, that, thanks for bringing that up, Derek. De- definitely some diversity of thought, uh, but I would say also that, you know, in in the Philippines, I would say that in terms of the conservative progressive spectrum, sometimes um, I don't know how helpful that is, but right. Majority, right. majority would probably lean like center conservative, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I would say that. But there are also some progressive minded folks there, progressive minded theologians in the Philippines. Um, and I've been thinking about this as well in terms of the development of the culture of a particular country, particular place, where questions about you know gender orientation and identity are going to be put in. Uh, uh, those questions are going to be put before the community. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and that's what that's something I've been struggling with in this whole world worldwide conversation about. You know, many people would say, oh, the LGBTQ, oh, it's a U.S. issue. Hmm. And I would say that to some degree that is true. Because in terms of where the U.S. is culturally, contextually, that question has really risen to the to the foreground, right? Right, right. I can't say the same for Africa. Maybe at some point that question will be put before those societies, those communities within Africa. And that that question is also, um, to a certain extent, being put now to the Philippines setting because of there's there's been a bill there called SOGI bill. Uh, I can't remember the SO, but something about gender identity. Um, and Oh, sexual orientation and gender identity bill. And so mm-hmm. the church as a community is also wrestling with that. And as expected, the majority of the voices are conservatives, right? right. Um, but in our present reality as the UMC, where there's this looming possibility of split, are, are people going to go this way? Are people going to go join the GMC? Will they remain UMC? It's <sighs> it, There's been a lot of conversation, a lot of chatter on online. And there's also a lot of desire for many people to remain United Methodists. And this, and some of these people identify more as conservatives in, in terms of, uh, if, in the theological spectrum. Mm-hmm. And 
let me just go back, you know, just to provide some background and experience in the Philippines when it when it comes to this. Because whenever there is an issue, whenever there's the possibility of split or some people leaving the church, mm. it's not always one issue. Mm. It's mm. always compounded by issues of personality clashes, um, some other issues, leadership, yeah. political dynamics, cultural dynamics, all of those are put on top of whatever existing issues there are, right? That's a universal yeah. truth, yes. yes. <laughs> and, and and I'm saying that because in the 2010s, the church in the Philippines have had experienced um, a split, right? It's not, mm. I, I'm, I'm not gonna say it was a major split, but also that there were, um, again, I don't have the numbers, but uh, several, quite a number of churches decided to form their own denomination um also methodist but a different branch of filipino methodists hmm. so to speak wow a and um and again this this issue um started with some um it, it was one of the bishops who who then again i don't want to simplify the issue right <laughs> it's not just yeah. one thing but a confluence of many different things and i'm gonna just talk about some of the experience of the churches that yeah. experienced those splits because not all local church were 100% oh we will go join this new denomination rather mm. there's some churches where oh we want to stay united methodist and the other would say oh we want to go this other way and some of the impact to that is like within families it created a lot of conflicts a lot of rifts mm. And in some cases, the church was padlocked and guarded by men with like um, metal bars. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it really damaged the testimony of the church in the community. Um, in some mm -hmm. cases, some people came to blows. Um, and so when this happens, the, the people in the community start asking, what's happening with you guys? You're, you're Christians, you're Methodists, you've been part of our community, and now you're fighting over this building. And they do not know perhaps the whole the whole story, but but and I just lift that up because that is a real possibility that can happen. I'm not saying it will happen, but it can happen in some settings where there may be some hotheads, you know, mm -hmm. and it and and some scenarios might happen where it's not very Christian-like conduct, right? Right. Um, and in some cases, some of those who left the UMC came back, uh, hmm. whether it's the congregation or some pastors came back to the UMC. Um, but one thing is for sure, any type of split, any type of schism is a painful process. Right. And it hurt the testimony of the church in the community. Um, that, that, that's what happened then. Uh, the other thing that I want to bring up is that in the past, um, I'm old enough to remember that at some point in our history in the Philippine UMC, is that um, there used to be a strong movement towards autonomy, where we become our own Philippine Methodist Church, something like that. Uh, similar to Korean Methodist Church that's, that has a relationship with the UMC, but not like in a direct way that we have right now. We almost had it actually, I think in 1972, but there was a technicality 
that prevented us from having that. And so, but now um, I'm not sure if the autonomous movement is as strong as it was. Some people are trying to revive the conversation, but I'm not sure if they're gaining traction. Um, but I think that at the root of the desire for autonomy is two things. Um, some folks were saying that the general conference tended to talk too much about U.S. issues. And, and some Filipinos were saying, we are not, we're, that's not really our issue. And they keep talking about it at the general conference. Um, it just so happened that the Philippine Central Conference has a setting where we can talk about Philippine-centric issues, right? And we don't need to bring it up to the general conference level. The U.S. did not have that. And so that's one of the conversations I remember having um, back in the 90s. You know, like, um, yeah, general conference, all they talk about is a lot of U.S. issues. <laughs> so so that's one. Um Secondly, with the autonomy movement, it's also a sense of as a church in the Philippines is that we want to have like more say, more uh, sort of self-determination. And that's a remnant for the, you know, the discourse on colonialism and, and making sure that we are determining our path as a nation, as a nation church sort of. So, so those are some of the dynamics that has informed that movement in the past. And again, I'm not, I'm not representing the full uh, gamut of the conversation and desire for autonomy, but some those two topics, issues are some of what I remember from from my um, uh, younger days as, as a United Methodist in the Philippines. You know, based on what you said, many though not all, but many. United Methodists in the Philippines would be center-right individuals. Um, and again, these labels really don't work. Yeah. They don't They don't just not work in the Philippines. Like they don't really work, um, but it's what we're working with. So um, what was your sense of the impact of the passing of the traditional plan at the special session of 2019 across our global connection. Um, and specifically, here's what I'd love. What what maybe did we in the US not hear? We heard a lot of things in the US after the special session. Most of that was US perspective on, on the spectrum, but what did we not hear that was happening around our connection outside the US when the traditional plan passed? Um, <clears throat> I think uh, that, that personally, some of my takeaways from the 2019 um, is that, yeah, a lot of folks in the central conferences are really traditional when it comes to their um, theology, right, and, and, um, and values. And um, I think that I'm also just going to name that because the general conference is a political process, technically, and that political tactics are also used sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's that. And and I think this is recognition that the church is in, um, in different places, theologically and socially, culturally, and 
for some, it's also the lament, lament that, you know, it has come to this after decades of talking with and then just reinforcing the traditional view of, uh, of marriage and, and view on, on sexuality, right? So I, I think that for some, many in the central conferences saw that as standing up for biblical truth, right? Because that's the traditionalist view. Mm -hmm. And many of mm -hmm. them are, are traditionalists, really. There are some who are um, who wanted to advocate for a more center of the road approach mm -hmm. instead of the more um, tight, you know, traditional plan. But I think that <clears throat> so after the general conference in 2019, it's really this recognition that many people, many churches in the central conferences are traditionalists and conservative sometimes very conservative in their view. Mm -hmm. And that which partly led to the uh, passing of the traditional plan at, mm -hmm. at general conference. And I know that can be hurtful for some of those in the, in the uh, progressive side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But my thinking was that one thing I've said earlier is that the question is put usually at an opportune time, right? Mm -hmm. But in terms of the development of societies, development of the church, development of, of culture, I just think that the question is, is imposed at that time to everyone equally. And that's just the way that our general conference works. And as I've also said that the decision-making, the conversations, a lot of the issues are also US-based. But to make things a little bit more complicated is that now you don't want the U.S. to have their own setting to, to talk through some of those U.S.-based issues because maybe the outcome would be different. Um, I don't know. Hmm. But uh, I, I'm talking about process. I'm talking about the dynamics of cultures and, right. and, and churches. Mm -hmm. And right now, or at least in 2019, that is where the churches in the central conferences are theologically mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. add to that some political processes on the side on the back on the front yeah. everywhere yeah. organizing happening for for mm -hmm. for all sides i would say mm -hmm. but here is maybe a paradox for some that even traditionalist folks would want to remain united methodist even say uh, beyond 2024, whatever happens to the, to, to the decision-making in 2024. And, and it may be a paradox, right? Because some people are saying that post-2024, the church is going to become more liberal. But people are saying we are traditionalist and we are United Methodist Church. And I think that that is going to be part of the challenge is can we live together? Can we be in a table together, even though we have different views on specific topics, including LGBTQ matters. Yeah. I think that's a very big question that is going to be put to the whole church in 2024 and beyond. Mm -hmm. And and again, this is what I'm wrestling with. I do not have all the answer. But again, the question of timing for, for the 
for the LGBTQ matters and other matters mm -hmm. for specific contexts for the church. Because right now, the LGBTQ question is really very important for the church in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, I cannot say the same for other places, mm. I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but because of our structure, then they also need to answer that question now. But but this is what I am wrestling with. And again, I do not have the answer, but that is that is what I've been wrestling with. And and mm. the the general conference being the general conference and the way that it has been over the past 50 years, 70 years, for however long we've been meeting at the general conference, mm -hmm. is that as you've said, we the, the general conference for better or not. <laughs> It's a political process, a democratic process, a voting process. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that brings out like combativeness in many different people. This is my position. That's your position. You know, we get a, yeah. I, I don't know, Derek. It's, I wrestle with many things, but uh, I guess I'm just going to bring this up. I'm, in a sense, I like this quote from Rilke, the poet. Mm. Like, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Oh. <laughs> I, I really like that quote because um, I don't need to have everything resolved in my head and my heart. I'm willing mm. to live into the questions. That's a different place sometimes, but I don't mind being in the questions. Mm. Oh, Mighty, that's so good. As we get closer to General Conference 24, we're about a year out now from the time of this recording. What do you think your work's gonna look like um, over the next year? What, what do you think you'll have your hands in uh, as we're getting closer to that space? Uh, you know, Derek, it's... Sometimes I wish that this prospect of split, splintering, uh, whatever term is appropriate, um, didn't happen. But it is happening. It's a reality that we need to contend with. It's going to look differently in the US, in the Philippines, in Africa, in Europe. I know, for example, that in the Philippines, there are some churches who have already joined the GMC. In Africa, I've heard some reports of some individuals and some churches joining the GMC. Um, I've also heard of some people deciding to go independent, right? Or to leave the church altogether and, and not bother with, with our conversations. But I think that I guess I'm going to go to the metaphor of a family that sometimes some members of the family move out and go their own way, never to be heard from again. Um, I hope that 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 will not be the case, but that um, even though there may be some pain now for disaffiliations, uh, relationships broken, that at some point in the future, we will be able to find ways to work with each other and collaborate, right? Mm. Um, that's a big hope for me um the speaking of pain there's a lot of 
pain that will that's happening mm. and will happen and i think that as much as possible i hope that people can bless each other whether they belong to the traditionalist camp or the progressive camp or somewhere in the middle mm -hmm. to, to bless each other and go separate ways however that would look like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but in terms of my work my hopes for the umc um globally there are some possibilities. There are a, a number of strains that I think are worth looking at, praying for, and continuing to look at. Mm -hmm. uh, number one is, you know, we are moving again, I, I keep saying this, a new reality where the majority world, as they say, the majority Christian world is moving to the South, to the mm -hmm. uh, away from the more developed countries to the yeah. developing and underdeveloping underdeveloped countries mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so one of my hopes is that we can look at best practices models of ministry that work in those contexts and find ways to walk alongside those uh, our brothers sisters our siblings there to support again to amplify where we can to support them in the work that they do and also to lift up those best practices to the rest of the worldwide connection that's a big hope of mine um and again i borrow from global ministries like from everywhere to everywhere how can we support each other as a global church when in in this age of diaspora in this age of um differences how how, how can we come together in 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 the midst of differences mm. because when um when when we pull together our resources our collective minds our ideas no matter where on the spectrum we belong or we identify with is that i think wonderful things can can come out of those collaborations so mm. um those are big things derek i don't know yeah. for sure how that will shake up but um, as for me, those conversations will need to happen um, in terms of looking for the best practices, looking for, you know, how do we best address these challenges? And when we are at the table in conversations with, with each other, whether, you know, from, from the West, from the East, from the North and the South, just this coming together, that, that's, that energizes me. So. Mighty, do you think there's a global future for the United Methodist Church? there is a global future for the united methodist church derek i believe mm -hmm. that in my heart mm -hmm. uh it will look different mm -hmm. i'm sure and there are hurdles that need to be uh to be what, what's the term um my, my filipino mind is interfering <laughs> with the with the english word um, yeah, yeah, yeah that needs to be uh overcome or like uh jumped over <laughs> yeah 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 there are hurdles but I think that there is a global future for, for the UMC. And mm. um, I, I hope my, my big hope is this, that when the dust settles and, and there, you know, some people will go, some people will stay, some people will go a different way. But when the dust settles, my hope is this, and I keep telling people this, that the work of discipleship will continue and that discipleship is a worldwide effort. And I think mm. that I would reiterate that 
to find ways to walk alongside each other and and to come together even though we may not agree on everything so mm. Marty, I am so grateful for this conversation. Um, I have been educated and my understanding of my church has been expanded. And so thank you for your work. Thank you for your witness um, and staying in this, staying in this ministry, particularly at this moment. Um, because I, I just believe that you are doing some really incredible stuff in helping the United Methodist Church be all that it's supposed to be. So really appreciate you and all that you bring. Um, and thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Derek. It's a, it's an honor and a privilege. And I've it's been wonderful working with you at GYPC yeah. and also great to, to hear and and listen to some of the episodes of of this podcast so it's amazing it. keep it up brother i do love long-form content and i'm sure there are others like me love it thanks so much mighty thanks derek we hope you enjoyed the episode bar of the conference is produced by the team at wesley's revival a ministry of studio wesley Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.